Today we're going to deal with the interpretive views of the book of Revelation. We will cover the date of the book, the date of composition of the book of Revelation, and then methods of interpretation. The dates do re relate to the methods of interpretation. And then next time we'll delve into chapter 1. We'll start our exposition next time. The first issue that we have to deal with is the date of the book of Revelation, the compositional date. When did John the Apostle, also called John the Elder, or simply the Elder, from 2 John and 3 John, the Elder, when did John the Apostle, uh, the Elder, write this book? And there are two views, main views, on this subject, two primary views. The one view says that it should be dated to A.D. 68 or A.D. 70, 68 to 70. That's the first view. The second view says that it should be dated to about A.D. 95. The first one, A.D. 68, and the second one, A.D. 95. Now, you recall in the past I had spoken about post-millennialism and also dispensational premillennialism. Those views have a bearing on the interpretation of the book of Revelation. In regards to the post-millennial view, some of them believe that all of the book of Revelation was fulfilled in the events leading up to and including AD 70. The, that, that is the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, the persecution of the Jewish people, massacre of many of them, persecution and enslavement of many of the Jewish people. That, that whole disillusion climaxes in AD 70. That's the view of some in the post-millennial camp. And the ones that say that it has completely, wholly been fulfilled in AD 70, they are called full preterist. Full preterist. A preterist is somebody who believes it's fulfilled or it's all past. So they take the whole book of Revelation, chapters 1 to 22, including chapter 19, which speaks of the return of Christ, chapter 21, which speaks of the, the new Jerusalem and the, the new city, the new dwelling, that in chapter 21, and then in chapter 22, the tree of life and the eternal state, the two destinies uh, of mankind, either in heaven or hell, chapters 21 and 22 entail that, they believe all of that has already been fulfilled. That's the full preterist post-millennial view. But some of them believe in a partial preterism. And they say that the events of the book of Revelation through chapter 19 have been, uh, or, or chapter 18, have been fulfilled in A.D. 70. And then chapters 19 to 22 are yet future. Now, that view is a lot better in terms of orthodoxy, but it still has some problems. Now, both of these views, whether full preterist post-millennial or partial preterist post-millennial, which means the world is improving and then the end of the world will come when it's Christian or almost Christian. Then the end comes. According to this view of the world and the Bible, they take the book of Revelation to be composed in the early date. They need the early date 
the dates 68 to 70, at that time for the book to be composed by John the Apostle. They want that date because it helps them say that John was simply predicting and explaining what was happening in his generation and what was about to happen with the cataclysmic destruction of the temple and Jerusalem and the massacre and enslavement of the Jewish people. This is what he is describing. That's what they say. So that is a reason for the AD 68 view. This is why it is important whether or not it was actually composed in AD 68 to AD 70. Now, what are their reasons for asserting this? Their reason for asserting this... Oh, before I get to the reason, let me say also that the one who invented this view, the one who invented this view was a Jewish priest, a, a Jesuit, I said not a Jewish, Jesuit, a Jesuit Roman Catholic scholar, Jesuit, who was an anti-Protestant. He was preaching and writing against the Protestant Reformation. He's the one who fabricated or invented this view. His name was Louis de Alcazar. Alcazar. He lived in 1554 to 1613, and his book on this subject, on the book of Revelation, was published in 1614. Now, why would he, as a Roman Catholic, write to say that all these events have already occurred? Why was he writing against the Protestants? Because the Protestants were saying that the Roman Catholic Church, and especially the papacy, the popes, the whole line of popes, that the whole Roman Catholic system was the Antichrist. And the personification of the Antichrist was the Pope, the papacy, in Rome. They kept on preaching that and teaching that, and that was their way of interpreting the book of Revelation. So, Alcazar, the Jesuit, he invented this view that you can't use the book of Revelation because everything's already happened. The Antichrist has already come, if the Antichrist has already come and gone by AD 70, he can't be the Catholic Church. He can't be the Pope. That can't be the Antichrist. This is the reason why Alcazar invented the view, to avoid the charge of being the Roman Catholic Church being the Antichrist. So what did they use? What are some of the lines of arguments that they used to say so? They use external evidence that is evidence outside the Bible, and they also use internal evidence. External evidence that they use. They have three sources for external evidence. The first is, in the Syriac New Testament, that is the Syriac language of the New Testament, someone translated the New Testament into the Syriac language in the second century, about a hundred years after the time of the apostles. Someone translated it into the Syriac language, and in that language they have certain notes and brief notations about the authorship of books and, and, and the dates of books. For the book of Revelation, it says, "...the revelation which God made to John the Evangelist in the island of Patmos, to which he was banished by Nero Caesar." Nero Caesar. Nero was the Caesar, and 
and was in Rome, the capital, from A.D. 54 to 68. That's his reign, A.D. 54 to 68. So that, that view says, we have an early witness, the Syriac New Testament, that ascribes the date of the book to the time of Nero, which also fits the time that they purport being before A.D. 70, the time of Nero, which was 54 to 68. Also, there is a fragment, a fragment known as the uh, Muratorian fragment, the Muratorian fragment, which was a compilation of the canonical books of the New Testament in order to withstand and to fight against certain people who are saying this book should be in the New Testament and that book should not. This fragment and the compilation or the canon, the collection of books, was in this fragment known as the Muratorian Fragment, and that dates to A.D. 170 to 190. That fragment, along with another one known as the Monarchian Prologues, the Monarchian Prologues were also prologues or introductions, brief notes on the books of the New Testament, and this one, dated to A.D. 250 to 350, A.D. 250 to 350, these two sources outside the New Testament say the following. Say, they say something to, the, to this effect, that Paul, he wrote to seven churches following John's example in Revelation. So that means that these two sources are assuming that Paul followed John's example in writing, which means John had to write before Paul. And we know Paul died by A.D. 68, maybe A.D. 67. He died by that point. So they say, this is another evidence, that the book was written before Paul died, because Paul wrote to the seven churches, or to at least seven churches, such as Rome, Corinth, Ephesus, Galatia, so forth. He wrote to seven. Now, internal evidence. Internal evidence, there's a couple of points. In Revelation chapter 11, Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 to 14, in Revelation 11, 1 to 14, it speaks of the, the temple that is standing in heaven. Or, and, or, and not, excuse me, not standing in heaven, but the temple that exists and the city which exists. For example, in 11, chapter 11 and verse 8, it says, Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Notice there, it says in verse 8, regarding the city of Jerusalem, it speaks of Jerusalem in mystical or spiritual terms as Sodom and Egypt. Sodom and Egypt. Jerusalem is called that, and we know it's Jerusalem because that's where our Lord was crucified. In verse 8, He was crucified there. But notice in verse 8 it says, mystically is called is called, and they think that this assumes 
that Jerusalem still stands. It's still a prominent city. It's still a central city. Therefore, they say, this is where Jesus was crucified. Everybody knows about that. And it's still there. And this is what it, we call it because it's still there. That's the way they interpret that verse. Then, another internal piece of evidence comes from chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17. In 17, 9 to 11, in 17, 9 to 11, it speaks of a place where there are seven heads and seven mountains. Here, 17, 9. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Notice the present tense. The woman sits there. And which city in ancient times sat on seven mountains? Rome did. Rome. So they say, this is Rome, current Rome, the time that John writes. And they are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. And the beast which was, was, which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven and he goes to destruction. According to this view, they say that this is a sequence of the Roman Caesars and the Roman Caesars in this sequence, the fifth one would be Nero the sixth one would be Vespasian, the seventh one would be Titus, and the eighth one would be Domitian. And so, as the argument goes, there is the beast which was and is not. So, they say that according to this sequence, the one that best fits would be Vespasian. And Vespasian, his rule ended uh, about A.D. 70. So, this is their, their line of argument within the book of Revelation. Now, just a brief note of, uh, or critique of, of this view. Yes, there is external evidence that there were some Christians who thought it was written in the time of Nero. There is some evidence of that. However, we will see that there is much more evidence outside the Bible among early Christians that it was not written in the time of Nero, but was written in the time of Domitian, which would be A.D. 95. So although there is some evidence, the preponderance of evidence is on the side of it being written in A.D. 95 by scholars outside the Bible commenting, writing commentaries on the book of Revelation. So... Then, on the internal evidence, I think that the, the interpretation of these two is quite feeble. These two passages from Rome, uh, Revelation 11 and Revelation 17, there are other ways to look at those verses that don't need to be taken in the way that they take those verses. So, and then lastly, uh, I would say that out of the wicked comes forth wickedness. Out of the wicked comes forth wickedness. That actually is from 1 Samuel 24, 13. And even Jesus said, a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. Even Jesus said that. So, it does not, these verses do not mean that evil people or wicked people, unbelievers, never do anything good. 
It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that what they produce, though there is some admixture of good with it, it's really contrary to the will of God, the wisdom of God, the, the goodness of God, and it should be rejected. It's contrary to the truth. So, when a Jesuit, a Catholic scholar, Jesuit, writes against the Protestants because he doesn't want his Pope called the Antichrist, it becomes dubious at the very beginning. If nobody before this, or hardly anybody, held a view like this, and he's the one practically who invented the view in 1614, that's when it was published, then we ought to be very suspicious of it. Why should we believe a view that is started by a Catholic writing against those who were preaching the truth? The Protestants were preaching the truth. Those such as Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Knox, and others who were preaching the truth and spreading the gospel in various parts of the world, that he was preaching and writing against them. So immediately it becomes dubious. Okay, that's one view that is held by some, but I, I believe we ought to reject it. Now, another view. Another view, common view, more common, much more common among Protestants and people in Baptist churches and other churches similar to the Baptist church that is the futurist view. The futurist view. That is, the book of Revelation, starting in chapters 4 and going through chapter 19, and for that matter, the rest of the book, from chapters 4 to 22, all of it is yet future. Therefore, it's called the futurist view. Especially chapters 4 and following. 4 to 18 describes the great tribulational period, and that is yet future. It's even future to us. It was future to John. It was future to the history of the church for the last 2,000 years at least. And it is still yet future to us. Therefore, that view is called the futurist view. Now, when did this start? And who are the major proponents? This also started in the time of the anti-Protestant movement or the counter-Reformation movement. The reformers in the 1500s, beginning especially with Martin Luther in 1517, from that time onward, especially these reformers were teaching that the Catholic Church and especially the Pope, he was the Antichrist. And the whole Catholic system was an Antichrist system. That's what they were preaching and teaching. Well, in 1585, 1585, two Jesuits, again, Catholic scholars, Jesuits named Ribera, that's the name of one, and the other was Bellarmine. These two, Ribera and Bellarmine, these are the ones who invented the futurist view. They said, no, 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 you cannot use the book of Revelation especially the middle chapters, to attack the Pope because this is yet future and it has to do with the very, very end of time, the last few years of the history of the world as we know it now. 
it has to deal with the future, and therefore it can never be applied. It could not be applied to the Catholics, to the Catholic priests. It could not be applied to the papacy of the Roman Catholic Church. It could not apply to them at all. So this futurist view was invented by these two Jesuits also to avoid the charge from Protestants that the Catholics were the Antichrist. At least the Catholic leadership, the papacy, the cardinals, and the whole system of leadership was the Antichrist. Well, that view, it was prominent in that time among some Catholics, but then it was revived in the 1800s. It was revived in the 1800s, around the 1830s and 40s, and into the 20th century, the 1900s in, in the 20th century. It became popular in Europe, especially in Ireland, because of John Nelson Darby, who is practically the founder of dispensationalism. John Nelson Darby. And then when it came to the United States, it was popularized by C.I. Schofield, C.I. Schofield, and then Dallas Theological Seminary, Charles Ryrie of the Ryrie Study Bible, who was also a professor, a longtime professor of Dallas Theological Seminary, and all of the presidents of Dallas Theological Seminary, the, some of them, the, the names you may have heard, John Walverd, Dwight Pentecost, these two especially, they were proponents of this futuristic view. And popularly speaking, there were books written in the 70s and 80s and 90s by Hal Lindsey, Hal Lindsey, the late great planet Earth. He wrote that book, popularizing this futurist view. And then Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. LaHaye and Jenkins, they wrote books, the Left Behind series, which also became movies. And through that, they popularized this futurist view. Many of them did not know and did not understand. Some did and some did not know that it was actually invented by these two Jesuits, two Catholic scholars, Ribera and Bellarmine. It was invented by them. However, it has become the most popular view today. Now, with this view and with the next view that I will explain, both of these views believe that the book of Revelation was written in A.D. 95. A.D. 95. Now, what is the evidence for the book being written in A.D. 95? Firstly, the external evidence. The external evidence written by, uh, in A.D. 95 and also written by John the Apostle. We have statements from Justin Martyr, who lived in A.D. 135. We have statements by Eusebius. He was a church historian in the 4th century. Eusebius. Tertullian, he was a pastor and scholar, theologian in the 2nd century and 3rd century. He wrote and explained about how this was written by John and in the period, in the time of Domitian. Domitian was one of the most ruthless Caesars of the Roman Empire, and he persecuted Christians, 
and demanded that even Christians and others worship him as a god. Not all the emperors did that, but Domitian was one of them who insisted on that, and therefore he persecuted a lot of people, a lot of Jews and Christians, because they refused to worship him. But, uh, and then there's others. There is Origen. Origen was uh, a scholar of the 300s and 400s. Another one, Hippolytus. Another is Victorinus. These are scholars, pastors, and theologians of the early centuries who all assert John wrote, and they, some of them have specific statements that he wrote in the time of Domitian, the emperor Domitian. And his reign was A.D. 81 to 96. A.D. 81 to 96. Now, one of the earliest statements was by a church pastor and theologian called Irenaeus. Irenaeus. Now, Irenaeus is important because he's one of the first ones to say, make a statement like this, and then he also is quoted by others as a reliable source on the writing of the, the book of Revelation. He says that this book, the apocalyptic vision, it was seen not very long ago, he says, not very long ago, almost in our own generation, at the close of the reign of Domitian. And he lived about A.D. 170. So when he says, not very long ago, almost in our own generation, well, if he lived about A.D. 170 and he's telling his readers this about the book of Revelation, then about 70 years before is not a whole lot uh, of time that has um, passed. So he, that's why he says, not very long ago, almost in our own generation, and at the close or at the end of the reign of Domitian. And we know his reign ended, reliably, that his reign ended in A.D. 96. So, he is one of the early sources for saying that it was written at that time. Now, Irenaeus was one who heard from one called Papias. P-A-P-I-A-S. Papias. Papias was one who was a hearer of John, as he says. Papias was a hearer of John. That is, John the Apostle was one who discipled Papias, and Papias knew Irenaeus. So Irenaeus says, Papias, the hearer of John, the disciple of John, he's the one who says these same things, that John wrote it when he was exiled by Domitian because he refused to worship the emperor, and he was exiled on the island of Patmos, and that's when he saw this vision. So this is why these statements... And the preponderance of evidence, external evidence, supports this, the assertion that it was written in A.D. 95. So, the dispensational view subscribes to this, and they have some good reason to subscribe for the date of A.D. 95. But the real question is, is the bulk of the book of Revelation predicting the future, even future to us?
our own generation. And that brings us to the next view. The, the third view, which is known as the historicist view. The historicist view, or let's call it the historical view. That is, the book is not describing the first century, and it's not describing the end of time, but it's describing events that happen commonly throughout history. Events that happen throughout history that commonly occur. That is, the forces of the government work against the church, and the forces of the false, visible Christian church work against the church. These forces are always at work against the true believers. But true believers must persevere, persevere because one day they will be vindicated by Christ when He returns. He will judge the world and He will bring vindication for His people. This is what the historicists view essentially what they, what they do when they interpret the book. So for them, the Antichrist is the Roman church or the false church the predominant visible church that claims to be the church, but actually their practices and their doctrines, their beliefs, they contradict the truth of the gospel. They contradict the Bible, and therefore they become a very sore poison and temptation for people that must be avoided. Uh, now this historicist view as well, most of them subscribe to the view that the book was written, the book of Revelation was written in AD 95. So if it was written in AD 95, in terms of factual matters, it could not have been already fulfilled by AD 70. It had to be interpreted another way. It could not be fulfilled in AD 70. And many of them, they didn't even think of that interpretation or that possibility. And in fact, it was their opponents that brought up that interpretation because the reformers such as John Wycliffe, William Tyndale, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, uh, Ulrich Zwingli, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Charles Spurgeon, Matthew Henry, some of these names you know. All of these interpreters held to the historical view or the historicist view that it's not describing the first century, and it's not describing the very end of time, it's describing the plight and the condition of the church that necessarily we must suffer in the face of opposition from the time of Jesus' first coming until the time of Jesus' second coming. Now, that is the view, the historicist view is the view that I hold. I believe in that view. I think that that deals with the evidence of the book of Revelation most accurately. Now, with that view, of course, there are some things that are yet future. That is, chapters 19, 20, 21, and 22 are yet future. But the historicist view will take whatever is said to the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, and whatever said to the believers, the saints, those who are persecuted in chapters 4 to 19 or 4 to 18, that applies to the Christians of every generation. These are common afflictions, common tribulations, common persecutions that Christians face and that we must always resist. We must always remain faithful, endure, and persevere until the end. 
That's the way the historicist view takes those middle chapters of the book of Revelation, chapters 2 to 18. They are applicable to every generation of Christians. Now, one more point on the fundamental key to the interpretation of the book. The fundamental key to the interpretation of the book of Revelation is this concept in interpretation or hermeneutics, biblical hermeneutics, called recapitulation. Recapitulation. To recapitulate is to summarize, to restate, to restate something that's already been said, but to say it again, sometimes with the same language and sometimes with additional language, different language, in order to make the point and drive the point, make the point clearer and to emphasize the point. That is called recapitulation. Now, recapitulation is not a new concept because from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, the Bible recapitulates all kinds of doctrines, all kinds of issues. It re recapitulates and emphasizes, reiterates, and drives home the point that there's only one true God, that God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that man is sinful, man cannot save himself, man must be redeemed in Christ, Christ must die for our sins, he must rise from the dead. We must put our hope in him, not in this world. There are all kinds of doctrines related to the gospel that are recapitulated throughout the Bible. So it should not, it's not a new concept in, in the interpretation of the Bible. But the book of Revelation specifically emphasizes recapitulation in the areas of the need for Christians to persevere until the end, to put their hope in God Almighty, who is sovereign, who controls all human events, who will protect His people through Jesus Christ, and he will eventually punish his enemies. His enemies will be punished one day. And the eternal destiny of his people is to be with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. And the eternal destiny of the unbelievers, those who are the Antichrist, is to be punished in hell, in the lake of fire. Eternal punishment is what awaits them. This is what is recapitulated emphasized again and again throughout the book of Revelation. And this is what we should seek to understand and seek to imbibe in our Christian faith. To have this point, or these kinds of points driven home time and time again when we read this book. Not to lose hope, but to persevere because Christ is with us. He will come again. We will be with Him. He will take care of us now and for all eternity and eventually he will punish the wicked. They will get what they deserve. This is the recapitulation of the book. Now, two examples of this recapitulation. Let's do a quick study of some verses throughout the book of Revelation on two topics of recapitulation. The first one is on the fact that there must be tribulation. There must be tribulation. There must be suffering, afflictions, persecutions. The church must experience and will experience tribulation and we should be ready for it and endure it. Don't let it surprise us. Don't let us demoralize us. 
Don't let it make us fall away from the faith, but persevere, putting our hope in Christ. Revelation 1, verse 9. Revelation 1, 9. I'll just read these verses and you'll see how they speak of tribulation in one way or another that awaits us and that we should endure throughout it. Revelation 1, 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 3. 2, verse 3. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Verse 11, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And you know that the rest of chapters 2 and 3 speak like this, emphasizing this need to overcome, and then we will enter the paradise of God, and then we will reign and rule with Christ. Chapter 6, Revelation 6, verse 9. Revelation 6, 9. And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who were to be killed even as they had been, should be completed also. You see that they had... They were... Underneath the altar, the souls of those who had been slain, verse 9. They cry out to God for justice, verse 10. And God tells them that they need to rest until the full number of their fellow servants are slain. And then the end will come, is the implication. Chapter 7, verse 14, 714. And I said to him, My Lord, you know, and he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Chapter 11, verse 7. 11, 7. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Overcome them and kill them in a bodily, physical way, not in a spiritual way, but in a bodily way. There will be death. That awaits. 12, verse 11. Chapter 12, verse 11. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even to death. Looking to the future, we will eventually overcome because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony and because they did not love their life even to death. Yes, we may die bodily, but we will not die spiritually because Christ will one day vindicate us. Chapter 14, chapter 14 and verse 12, 14, 12. 
Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Perseverance. This is the perseverance. By keeping the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And we will be called blessed. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Christ will remember our deeds when the day of judgment comes. Chapter chapter 18 and verse 24. Chapter 18 and verse 24. Babylon the Great falls, and it says about Babylon the Great. 18.24, the last verse. And in her, in the city, was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. That speaks of our persecution, that Babylon the Great is guilty for slaying prophets and saints and all who have been slain on the earth. And then 21, verse 7, Revelation 21, 7. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. There, the first part of the verse, he who overcomes. He who overcomes assumes that we persevere until the end. He who overcomes. So that is a common theme, tribulation, throughout the book. This is the sense in which there is recapitulation, recapitulation of this truth, that tribulation awaits and that we must endure it. Well, a corollary to this, which is also recapitulated throughout the book, is the judgment vindication truth. The fact that there will be judgment on unbelievers and there will be vindication of believers. Judgment and vindication throughout the book of Revelation. We begin in chapter 1. Chapter 1 and verse 18. 1.18 John the Apostle sees a vision of Christ here and Christ says to him, we could actually start in verse 17, 117. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. John, and as well as us, we ought to put our confidence in the first and the last, in Christ. Not, not to be afraid, but put our confidence in Him because He is now the living one. Yes, He was dead for three days and was buried, but He says He's alive. Behold, I am alive forevermore. He possesses immortality and He possesses the keys of death and Hades. He controls the destiny of people. And what happens Death and of Hades. He controls that, so put our confidence and hope in Him. Chapter 2, chapter 2.21, And I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, 
until, uh, excuse me, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Christ is the one who searches all hearts, and he will mete out judgment according to deeds. Those who practice wickedness and those who practice righteousness. He's the one who will judge the world. Chapter 2, verse 26, 226. And he who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. Christ will give to us, we who overcome, and we who keep his deeds, we who follow his example, until the end, verse 26 says, authority over the nations, will rule them with a rod of iron, will break them in pieces as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. We will crush our enemies. That's our vindication. Chapter 3, verse 9. 3, verse 9. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. He's going to make our enemies bow to us and make them know that He loves us. He's going to make them see and know that that is true. Chapter 5, verse 9. 5, 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain, and you purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. He has purchased us, and He'll make us a kingdom, priest to God, and we will reign upon the earth, He says. This is what awaits us. We are beloved of God, and we will reign with Him. Chapter 11. Chapter 11 and verse 17. 11, 17. Let's actually begin at verse 15. We'll read 15 to 18. Revelation eleven fifteen, And the seventh angel sounded, and there arose loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came. And the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to give their reward to your bondservants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to those who fear your name, the small and the great and to destroy those who destroy the earth. There we have a, a thanksgiving and praise to God for His power and His kingdom. And God judges the dead, and He gives them what they deserve, and then He gives us our reward. Chapter 15, chapter 15, verse 2. Chapter 15, verse 2. 
And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, you, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. A day awaits when we will praise God like this for vindicating us and judging the people of the earth. Chapter 18, chapter 18, verse 20. 1820, Babylon the Great. When it is destroyed by God, Revelation 1820, God says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Rejoice over her. Rejoice over the destruction of Babylon the Great, the harlot who pollutes the whole earth. Rejoice over her destruction. O heaven, and you saints, there we are, and and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you, for our benefit, against her. And then chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse 1. Again, this is uh, another passage, and this will be the final one we read on judgment and vindication. Chapter 19, verse 1. After these things I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because His judgments are true and righteous. For He has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and He has avenged the blood of His bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you His bondservants, you who fear Him, the small and the great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude and as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. This is what we have to look forward to, and this is the kind of recapitulation that occurs in the book. There are many such truths that are emphasized again and again to make us look to the future and be hopeful, to have confidence in the Word of God and not lose heart in the meantime, no matter what happens. This is the purpose. And this is the purpose of the bulk of the book of Revelation, to teach us to be this way, to endure until the very end. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says.